Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. April 4, 2018 marks the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The life and death of the great civil rights leader will be our topic today. Andrea Davis Pinckney and her husband and artistic collaborator, Brian Pinckney, will join us to talk about their new book, Martin Rising, Requiem for a King. Andrea is a writer, a poet, and an editor, as well as a dear scholastic colleague. She'll tell us about the inspiration behind the lyrical poems in Martin Rising. Brian, who is an award-winning illustrator and fine artist, will talk about the luminous paintings that he created for the book. Martin Rising chronicles King's final months in Memphis, Tennessee. He traveled there on several occasions in the winter and spring of 1968 to help sanitation workers organize for fair treatment and wages. To read Martin Rising is to have your heart broken all over again 50 years later. One is left to wonder how America ever survived such a tragedy, which shook it to its core. But the story that the Pinckneys tell gives young readers hope. The changes that King called for are indeed within our grasp. I'm delighted to welcome Andre and Brian to talk about America's most beloved and celebrated civil rights leader. Andre and Brian, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you, Suzanne. Nice to be here. Yes, it's a pleasure. Welcome. Welcome to you both. First, tell us about Martin Rising, how the book came to be, and which one of you had the idea first? Well, we had the idea kind of at the same moment. We were at a Martin Luther King Day party, and it was a dance party. There were families and children and teachers and librarians and neighbors and friends on the dance floor. And all of a sudden, somebody, I guess, got into the DJ box and turned on over the music Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, and then started to mix with the music the the I Have a Dream speech. And uh, you could just feel this palpable energy in the room where, again, children were dancing about Martin Luther King's dream. And I turned to my husband, Brian, and I just said, Martin Rising. And it was just this moment, and uh, that was the beginning. Yeah, I think we both knew there was something really happening here. And uh, the DJ, you could see his laptop, and there was a picture of Martin Luther King there also. So, like, the visual was there, his speech was there, and the timing was right, and it looked like something was going to happen. I didn't know what yet. I could tell that Andrea had gotten inspired, though. And I knew when she gets that look in her eye that she's going to hand me something. <laughs> Some kind of manuscript that's going to be incredible. Yeah. All right, well, tell us a little bit about the book. Well, Martin Rising uh, is not a biography about Martin Luther King Jr. It chronicles the days leading up to his assassination. So it takes place over a period of weeks beginning in uh, February 1968, 
moving through April 1968. And what I didn't realize is that Martin Luther King Jr. in that time frame came to Memphis with a purpose. He came to Memphis, Tennessee because the sanitation workers of Memphis were striking. They were seeking equality, fair wages, and Martin came to support them. And that was the reason that he came to Memphis, Tennessee. So that was something, again, I didn't know. And it were it was those events that led up to, again, his unfortunate demise, his assassination in April 1968. So that is a very interesting point. In classrooms, they often focus on the I Have a Dream speech or the Selma March, but not the Memphis sanitation worker strike. Right. Why is that, and why did you choose to focus on that? I focused on that because it involved families. These were men who wanted the best for their children. They they could not support their families on the wages they were making. And so while it was about men, you know, the sanitation workers, it really was about the families surrounding those men, and I thought that was important. I also thought it was important because young folks are now especially coming together for many causes that they believe in. And that was lovely to see in the book lovely, uh, heart-wrenching too, that children, some, t- what, 22,000 children skipping school to participate in the protests exactly. and the strikes. Right. Exactly. And the reason why the children did this, and they thought this was, their parents couldn't leave work because they would be fired. But they knew the children could leave school. And oftentimes the teachers also were very aware of this. So they would actually mark the students pr- present and then let them go out gosh, to march. Yeah. Gosh, it was very well organized. It's really, it's such a, a, not an often told story. What primary sources did you draw upon to make the book historically accurate? I mean, including the stormy weather in Memphis in the winter of 1968. Uh, Well, visually, I looked at hundreds of photos and footage from the marches. So I wanted to make sure I had, you know, the way people were dressed right. I captured the best likeness of Martin Luther King that I could. And the weather patterns was really meditating on weather. And believe it or not, I was actually thinking about the icons on a cell phone. When there's a different weather, they'll have a cloud or a sun or a moon, whatever. So I actually use symbols throughout the book to kind of reference back to what the weather was happening at the time. That's fascinating. So tell us a little bit about your process of working together. Andrea, you call these docu-poems. Right. Mm-hmm. And Brian, you did the images and the, the illustrations. You're married. (laughs) Your studio is not at home, Brian. No, it is not. It's in a separate location. (laughs) Undisclosed. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about that back and forth and how it works. So first, the docu-poems. The narrative is structured in a series of poems that are based on actual events and happenings. So everything that you read in the poems really happened. And with respect to primary sources... We spoke to people who were very active then. We researched the real weather patterns that were happening on the days that are indicated in the narrative. And that was kind of the beginning in terms of the actual nonfiction. That was really the scaffolding of the narrative itself. Now, in terms of us working together yeah, <laughs> to create that question. book. <laughs> many, many years and many, many books to practice what would be most effective mm-hmm. and loving at the same time. So um, we have a few guidelines that we follow when we work together. One is that, as Andrea, as you know, my studio is not in the home. So Andrea does not see what I'm working on all the time. 
So we often have meetings, and usually it's on a Saturday. We go to our local cafe, and we have big tables. They know us there. They know what we like to eat. We can spread out our artwork and the manuscript, and we can talk about how things are going. I have a few guidelines for Andrea, which is that if she sees something in my artwork that she feels maybe needs a little work, um, I suggest that she says to me, certain images look unresolved. And that way I can kind of hear that and take that in and then make changes on it. Um, Andrea has some guidelines for me also when I'm reading her manuscripts because I can often see the big picture. Her suggestion is that no matter what level she's at, I always start my comments out with, honey, you're off to a great start. <laughs> right. And that way... And, and then we're good. Forward. Yeah, we're good. we're good. I mean, we're all off to a great start, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we are, you know. Um, and, and the idea is that the meeting stays there. So we're not talking about it like while we're eating breakfast or eating dinner, that we kind of keep it to that meeting. Right. Um, and we like going back and forth. You know, I love reading Andrea's words, and, and they're always inspiring me. And she loves hearing about my thoughts, about what the images will be, and looking at the sketches as we're going along. And that helps motivate her as well. So we should point out here you have two children. So this helps yes, them do. and you, they don't have to hear all of the conversation. Yes, yes. Completely. <laughs> yes. In fact, one time we uh, did have a discussion at home. We, we broke our rule, which is, you know, right, we keep it in that contained space. And one time I think at the dining room table we were working. And then oh, later right. on when our son was little, we were on a road trip and he was in the backseat imitating us. Uh, what we sounded like. So we thought, okay, we got to go back to that other structure, <laughs> yes. you know. And in the spirit of Martin Luther King Jr., we have learned to work peacefully and nonviolently uh, among each other. Uh, and it's really a pleasure. It's really great. I, that shines through. <laughs> Andrea, right now, would you mind reading one of the poems for our listeners here? Sure, yes. So the poem I'm going to read, and the book is structured whereby each poem is dated, so we know where we are at this moment in time, in this moment in history. So one of the poems is entitled Valentine, and it happens on February 14th, 1968, and at this point, the Memphis sanitation workers are really, really wanting equality. Martin once said, we must meet the forces of hate with the power of love, Martin once said, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. Martin once said, love is the key to the solution of the problems of the world. Martin once said, love your enemies. On this day, folks in Memphis are down on their knees proposing to equality. Be mine. Thank you. Beautiful. And Brian, you want to tell us about the illustration that accompanies the poem? Um, Well, the illustration that accompanies that poem shows the workers, and they're standing very tall, dignified, a lot of yellow light kind of shining through. And one of my inspirations is um, Mark Chagall, who did a lot of stained glass windows, and I like the idea of light and love. Uh, Mark Chagall also said that color was love. And I thought when I was reading Andre's poems, talking about Martin's words, it came through my heart these images, very much like poetry. So I kind of call them visual poetry. So they're expressive, they're impressionistic, metaphorical. So there's always other elements that I think readers can look at in the illustrations that kind of add information. For example, that illustration shows several men standing with their hands that are very large because they worked with their hands. And I also think of hands as an extension of the heart. So they were holding their hands out 
asking to be treated like men. Oh, and King brought them so much strength and dignity, right? Because the movement was flagging for a time then, would you say, in February and March? That's right. That's right. You know, the other aspect that we really wanted to bring to the story, and again, I didn't really know this before researching Martin Rising, was that we see Martin Luther King Jr. as such an iconic, superhuman figure. And as is chronicled in the book, he was a human being. And it's cited there where he didn't feel well at times. He worried that his dream was not going to be realized. He predicted his own death even in the uh, I've Been to the Mountaintop speech. He was weary. At one point, he begs his friend, Ralph Abernathy, to go do the speech on his behalf. And Ralph says, no, Martin, no, they want you. They want your words. And having a cold, having a fever, under the weather, Martin Luther King Jr. shows up and does the I've Been to the Mountaintop speech. And thank goodness he did. So that's another thing we wanted to, you know, kind of illuminate and point out to young people that he was a human being who transcended his own his own physical limitations toward the end of his life. You can feel that so deeply in the book. I mean, that fever and the fact he got up out of his bed, you know, Abernathy's grabbing at him. You've you've got to be the one. There was also that that last meal. You feel it was going to be Martin's great reward, this last supper. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't make it to that. Could you talk about that a little bit? Right, exactly. So toward the end of the book, there is a poem entitled Soul Fixins. And that poem is dated April 4th, 1968. So it's the early evening now. Now we know from reading the book that that was his last day on earth. And he's preparing to go to the home of a friend and colleague, the Reverend Billy Kyles. Billy's wife, Gwen, makes this amazing meal, which are fixings for the soul. It's soul food. You know, it's the food I grew up on and that I love so much. You know, collard greens and, and meat and potatoes and, and all of that. And he's, he's excited, but he never gets to that meal, yeah. sadly. Wow. Now, the book ends with the devastation of King's murder and the many unanswered questions about James Earl Ray. But then you get to Easter Sunday. It's quite a pivot. How did you do that? How did you bring in so much hope and love and inspiration? Well, the book is divided into three sections. So it's daylight, where we see Martin is born. That's the first poem happens on his the day of his birth. And then there is darkness. So we go into those weeks again, leading up to his assassination. And then the final section of the book, the third section, is Dawn. And that was a very deliberate, intentional choice that, yes, Martin is no longer with us, but now it's time for Dawn. It's a new day. We can, again, transcend what is dark and and take Martin's legacy and his words and his message and rise above so much darkness to, to beauty and new things and, and hope and light in a bright future. Yeah, it's beautiful. It, it, it's stunning. So it's dawn, Brian, and there is this pivot toward hopefulness and light. Walk us through the illustrations. Tell us a little bit about them. Okay, so one of the things that I wanted to do with my art was really use color to kind of inspire a new day. So the image for dawn shows the sun rising. I also am using different types of art forms, like some are very impressionistic, some are very expressive, some are symbolic. So 
So I want readers to really look at the artwork to see what kind of resonates for them. For example, um, the mood that was happening at the time is reflected in the color. And one of the first poems after dawn, I show the um, misty sky. And it's very abstract, but you can see the rooftops of buildings. But there's also this sense of color and light that's shining through this mist that's going to eventually take over the day. Such a beautiful book. I've got to ask here, too, about the other king in Memphis, Elvis Presley. You write he was living behind black iron gates, oblivious to the plight of workers, marchers, strikers. What do we actually know about Elvis Presley at that time, living in Graceland, his views about the strike and his city and the division and discrimination? Well, you know, again, you know, they say like real life can be as exciting as fiction, you know. And in researching, I thought, what a strange irony that the king, you know, the, the other king, right, Elvis Presley, was living in Memphis at that time. And as far as I could tell, he was, you know, somewhat oblivious to what was going on uh, living in Graceland. Again, as you say, kind of behind his, his, the beautiful gates of his home. And again, it just struck me as a great irony that these marchers were literally passing Elvis, the other king's front door, you know, with Martin Luther King Jr. himself supporting them. It just, again, was just very strange, but true. (laughs) Strange, but true. Right, right. That was really something. Could you both talk about your own experiences growing up during the civil rights movement? Tell us, Andrea, let's start with you. Sure. Uh, Well, I was born shortly after the I Have a Dream speech. So that happened on August 28th. 1963. And August 28th, by the way, is my husband's birthday. Mm -hmm. So he was born on the day that Martin was giving that speech. Anyway, so uh, and then I came a short time after that. So I always joke that, um, and my parents were living in Washington at the time. I was born in Washington, D.C. My dad marched with King at that march with the 250,000 other marchers. Mom, because she was expecting me, wanted to go so badly and was prepared to go and was on her way. And my father said, no, 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 you're going to stay home. So she did with her feet up waiting for me to arrive. But I always joke that I heard that speech in my mommy's tummy. You know, she was watching, hoping my dad was safe, you know, seeing it on on television, listening to it. And uh, I, I really believe that on some level that had an impact on me. But I really remember when Martin was assassinated uh, in April 1968, I remember the uh, shock and disbelief that people had, and especially in my very own home. Shortly thereafter, my dad came to our church. He spoke to our congregation about Martin's death, but also about his life and what we could do now at this moment. And there were three words that stuck with me from that day, from my, my, my own father's words. And the words were peace, good, and dream. And that kind of has stayed with me as a refrain really all these years, peace, good, dream. And those words work as a refrain in Martin Rising. And uh, if one were to ask, how did the book really begin, it, I, I guess I could say, on that day in the congregation with my dad. The other thing I remember was that when we were entering the church on that particular Sunday, there was a procession whereby the clergy were leading it, 
Then came my father because he was going to speak that day. And I, at seven years old, had to hold a giant placard with the portrait of Martin Luther King Jr. And I remember it being very heavy, and I kept having to hoist it on my knee. And I remember thinking, okay, for Martin, I will do it. And it's falling, and it's dipping, and I'm hoisting it. And then I had to put it on a on a stand and then sit down in the pew and, and listen to my daddy speaking. So, uh, so it was just a, a beautiful memory of what was possible, again, in the face of darkness. Oh, gosh. So I guess the I Have a Dream speech was delivered on my second birthday. Um, I just remember growing up just so aware of Martin Luther King and our family and our community and school. It was just like a part of my growing up. And, um, and I remember his assassination. I remember when that happened. And I remember hearing about it as a kid and being on the street and people coming out of the houses and, and saying that Martin Luther King had been assassinated and pointing in the direction of Memphis from Boston. Oh, and um, it just was a pivotal moment, I think, in my life and family. And, and my father was part of the civil rights movement in his own way, he says, because he had four kids. He was supporting. He was an illustrator. But he made signs, picket signs for marchers. And they must have been the most beautiful <laughs> signs ever. I can imagine. Yeah, we probably should have saved some of those. Yeah. <laughs> Without question. Mm-hmm. Yes, your father is also a famous illustrator in his That's own right. right. Jerry Pinkney, yes. Quite a family gene pool here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, when did you first see yourself, Brian, reflected in the pages of a book? I probably saw myself reflected in the pages of my father's books because as a child, I actually modeled for him for most of his books. So growing up, if he was doing a book about a little boy from Africa, he would dress me up like I was a little boy in Africa and photograph me and do his drawings from that. If he was doing a book about a little boy in the South, I dressed up as that. If my sister wasn't home, I dressed up as the little girl. Yeah, so I, I learned what it was like to be in a creative family. Every day was like Halloween. And and so I did, didn't have that experience that a lot of African-American children have of not seeing themselves in books because I had many books around me. And being that my father was an illustrator, he also made sure he had every book that featured an African-American child in our library at home. Could I go back in time a little bit? Could you tell me a little bit about what your father, where your father grew up and what, how he got into illustration? Okay, so my father, Jerry Pinkney, grew up in Philadelphia in Germantown. He got into illustration just because he loved to draw. And he had a newsstand. And one day he was drawing and a famous cartoonist came up and saw him and asked my father to come visit him in his studio. And that was my father's first seeing a professional artist at work. And his name was John Limey. And uh, he learned that this was something he could possibly do one day. From that point, took as many art classes as he could and eventually went to University of the Arts and became an illustrator from there. Super. Mm -hmm. All right, now, Andrea, I want to ask you about seeing yourself in the pages of a book for the first time. Well, much like Brian, you know, because my parents uh, really believed in, you know, representation. You know, we have to see ourselves. They did everything possible. Now, again, this was back in the 60s and 70s. There was not a lot to choose from. Uh, thank you, Jerry Pinkney, <laughs> for providing some of those uh, early books. And, you know, my experience was with The Snowy Day. Uh, my parents brought that book for me, and I have very clear memories of my dad reading it over and over and over and over and over. And I, you know, I joked that I slept with that book. It was like a pillow. That's how much <laughs> comfort it brought me. So now here we are, 50 years after King's assassination. It's a reflective time. There's still so much injustice we see around us. 
What do you want young readers to take away from your book? What are you thinking? Where do we go from here? Inspiration. I think they, I want them to be inspired. I think we want them to be inspired and to realize that change can always happen and that there's always going to be times of darkness in the world, but there's always opportunity for light and that it's up to us to shine the light and find the light and bring that to being. Right, exactly. You know, I want to say, you know, you two young people can make a difference, even if it's just reading a book that inspires you, telling others about it, and... Uh, being the best person you can be. Wow. As the children in this book were an inspiration to all of us. Well, thank you both so very much again for being here. It's been a real joy. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks again to Andrea and Brian for joining us. And thank you for listening. To learn more about Martin Rising, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Don't miss an episode of Scholastic Reads. Find us and subscribe in your favorite podcast app, and each episode will automatically be delivered to your phone. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow, sound engineers Daniel Jordan and Chris Johnson, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I am Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time. Music